Hello, just a quick bit before this week's episode to let you know that we have a Patreon you can subscribe to if you like what we're doing here and you want more of it. You probably already knew that. We don't stop going on about it. What you didn't know is that you can currently get a little free trial so you know exactly what you'd get as part of your subscription. You can head to patreon.com slash whatismusicpod or follow the link in the show notes to get your first seven days free. All you need to do is pick which tier you'd like a free trial of. The Biggest Mates tier is the one that has all the extras in it. And then for seven days, you are free to listen to any episode we've released in the last six months. You can cancel any time or just leave the subscription rolling if you like what you find. It's charged monthly. And during any month, as part of that Biggest Mates tier, you'll get ad-free episodes of this show every Monday. You'll get a brand new episode of our new Manic Street Preacher show every month. Two episodes every month of The Ultimate Playlist, our themed playlist show, where we talk about all kinds of different music, different artists, different genres, different eras, and one or two bonus episodes every month, depending on the length of the month. That's two episodes every week. There's also other tiers to trial. One that is just the Manic Show and ad-free What Is Music episodes, and another that is just ad-free What Is Music episodes. But hey, if the first seven days are free, why not try a bit of everything? Plus, all tiers include access to the exclusive subscriber-only Discord where we discuss the shows, the bands we've covered, various music topics, and loads of other stuff, including some games that the friendly community have devised themselves. So head on over to our Patreon page now to claim your free seven-day trial. Go to patreon.com slash whatismusicpod or follow the link in our show notes. See you there. very difficult to do the uh, interrupted introduction when you're uh, when you're by yourself so uh, hello uh, and welcome to what is music a music podcast about music we're a podcast that focuses on discographies in their entirety doing deep dives on one artist at a time uh, we're currently in season two which is called are you amused a critical analysis of the history cultural impact and music of muse however Today's guest is mostly going to be talking about the band Manic Street Preachers, the subject of season one of this very podcast, which was called Do You Love Us? A critical analysis of the history, cultural impact and music of Manic Street Preachers. We've been asking and answering questions like, does context matter when you're listening to music? Does knowing the history of a band give you further appreciation of their output? And last season we were asking, do you love us? And to be clear, we were asking whether or not you love the band Manic Street Preachers, not the host of this podcast uh, about Manic Street Preachers, season one of which was called Do You Love Us? And to which you are now listening i'm adam scott glasspool and uh that's it uh it's just me today um yeah so but in a second i'm going to be joined by uh mark burrows who is uh, an author a musician a critic a comic and editor of the book manic street preachers album by album it's a book that features numerous writers contributing essays that each focus on uh, a manic's album this is kind of tied together by a chronology of the band. Mark contributed those uh, interstitial chronological sections as well as a couple of the essays of his own. Uh, I myself contributed the chapter on uh, Lifeblood. Uh, Mark has also written the Locus Award-winning The Magic of Terry Pratchett, which is a biography of the author Terry Pratchett. And he's in the band uh, The Men That Will Not Be Blamed For Nothing. Uh, we talked about all of that uh, and... Uh, quite a bit more <laughs> so uh, enjoy the episode
were at Comic Con right? How, how, a, a few, few days, days ago. How, how days was Comic Con? Really fun. Yeah, I've never. It's the first time I've done that selling books. It's the first time I've I've been in a. I've been to that kind of convention thing as a performer before, but I've never been. You know, I, they had a big banner with my face on it and stuff, which I was a bit surprised by. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly because like I kind of felt that like the selling point of me being there was my Terry Pratchett book, not so much me. But um, right. just People the way it's... actually recognise your face, I suppose. Yeah, I kind of felt like a big picture of Terry Pratchett would have been a reason for people to come over, whereas a big picture of um, minor biographer who, uh, <laughs> with a sideline in, you did win the Locus Award for it. I did win a Locus Award for it. Yes, I'm, I'm very so, glad I you, mean, you know, brought that up. Well, you you emailed me before and asked me to mention it in the first five minutes, so I'm just <laughs> fulfilling that request. <laughs> That's a joke, just to be clear, just in case anybody thinks Mark would actually email me and ask me to mention his award. Yeah, um, I'd like to, I'd, I'd like I'd like it to be brought up in the first ten seconds of most conversations. Yeah. So, if anything, you left it a little late. Um, I'll have mentioned it in the intro as well, so we're going to get as many uh, mentions as possible. Okay. Okay. Good. Did I mention I'd won an award? Uh, yeah, I think we <laughs> we just mentioned it, but we'll we'll yeah, just see if you can do it in every answer. Sure. Um, so I mean, the reason that you're on this podcast is because you've written slash edited a book on Manic Street Preachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're also a musician. I am. But before we talk about the book or Manic Street Preachers or your journey getting into the Manics or anything like that, we're going to start right at the basics, Mark. What is music? Well, as a, speaking as an award-winning an award-winning writer, <laughs> I believe it's a podcast, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> oh, it's um, I mean, it's the the name of, of a mid two thousands kind of progressive indie band. Um, Is there a band that's just called Music? The Music. You must remember oh, that's, the Music. That's great. Hey, I... na 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 na. I mean, the I don't people, know if it's your rendition of it or how people. famous the song is, but I'm not getting it. <laughs> the lead singer ended up being in a, briefly forming a band with um, Mike Skinner from the Streets that no one listened to. They oh, really? Very, they were a very big deal for a while, the, um, the music. They were a main stage Glastonbury band. No way. Yeah. Like, fairly low down, though. Oh, right? like a mid-afternoon main stage Glastonbury band. Okay, right, okay. So that's your answer. For you, music is... That band from the nineties. <laughs> no, actually, that band of the nineties is everything that music isn't, which is ironic. Oh right, okay. <laughs> okay. Cool. Uh, it's almost an anti-answer. Yeah, uh, which I, I think they're just very clever. <laughs> they're an art project that gone that went too far, like Test Icicles. Uh, <laughs> Test Icicles were—I don't know if you know who Test Icicles were. Um, another, I've heard the name because everybody's heard the name. Right? Yeah, another mid two thousands indie band formed by Dev Haynes, who Hines, who went on to. Uh, to be Lightspeed Champion and then achieve mm. considerable success as Blood Orange um, yes. and has done some incredible work as Blood Orange but he was in a kind of new rave garage rock band like enemy new rave garage rock band called Test Icicles that was basically a laugh of him and his mates from down the indie club uh, that went that people took away too seriously and they had to split up because like they were really embarrassed by it well, they were embarrassed by how serious people took their music. Yeah, they're, they're, they're what they felt was ridiculous music. They didn't think they were a real band. It happened by accident. That's music. That's interesting. That's, That's music. music. Stuff that happens by accident. Well, sounds that happen by accident. I mean, 
I'm not, I am no musicologist. I'm an award-winning biographer. But I... Um, I, uh, you know, the mu- music is what happens when you put your thoughts to a beat. Excellent. I mean, you're, you know... Your uh, dedication to answering such a shit question is is, <laughs> is admirable. What's your what's like your earliest experience of music? Going like all the way back to the beginning, can you remember? Um, I remember being dramatically emotionally impacted by Band Aids. Do they know it's Christmas? Which would have come One out one of the most emotional songs ever written. In, in a way, <laughs> mm. I mean, in a, in a, in another way, kind of not. But uh, but I was that that came out what Christmas ninety Christmas eighty three so I would have been two now I don't remember it particularly that year but it was on a lot the next year and the year after so it would be, it was you know right. it's a Christmas song it was a perennial um so my earliest memories of music is that I was obsessed with that song Boy George in the video just like where's which one's Boy George where's Boy George that's Boy George um, that's so, so interesting because it means that one of your earliest experiences of music is a song that features like all of the famous musicians <laughs> from that era it's yeah, like it's, all it, popular music at once <laughs> yeah it's like a it's a yeah essentially it's a condensed version of the of the mid 1980s um phil collins plays drums on my definition of what music is in my subconscious uh, but um <laughs> like if you listen very very carefully you put your ear to the back of my head all you can hear is over and over again um but uh yeah that was and then so my first ever favorite album was that was what was then called the christmas album and has since been repackaged as now that's what i call christmas but uh, right. like the first version of now that's what i call christmas which was called the christmas album um like i can tell you the track listing like like, like by memory I, I know uh, it opened with do they know it's christmas uh then um uh, Slade, then Wizard, uh, then um, Shaking Stevens. I'm not going to hold you to this. This will then, be super dry podcasting. Then it was Gary Glitter, <laughs> Rock and Roll oh, Christmas. Okay, uh, right. uh, he's not on. He's not on the current version. Like they dropped that one after a while, replaced him with Cliff Richard. So, um, <laughs> but yeah. So I um, used to love that record, that album, and then after that, Michael Jackson. I was really, really, really into Michael Jackson, as anyone sure. who was my age and was a, was like a boy in the mid eighties was. Yes, I was I was I was into Michael Jackson at, at one point. Of course, like it's just, you know, great uh, pop music. I can't listen to him anymore though. No. Um <laughs> How did you get into the Manics? How how do you get from Do You Know It's Christmas? Do they know it's Christmas to Manic Street Preachers? Uh well you let you let about thirteen years and a lot of crying go past. <laughs> but great. Um, tell me about the crying. Uh I'm not we may have to work up to the crying. Uh, okay. No, I mean, I was an angsty teen. I was a very angsty, uh, angsty, depressing mm. teen kind of teen. I was a Manic Street Preachers fan, I, and still am. I was every right. textbook yeah. cliche of a of a mid nineties Manics fan. I, I mean, I got into indie music, alternative music, through via Guns and Roses. Actually, Guns and Roses were like my gateway into the world of music that wasn't, you know, Michael Jackson and Erasure. Erasure were my other band that I really right. loved when I was really young. Uh, and then one day somebody gave me a tape of Usual Illusion 2 at work. I wrote an article about this uh, for The Guardian. If you, if, you Google, uh, if you Google me, you'll find it. about um, the, Called The Moment That Changed My Life. 
uh, it was for a, a series called The Moment That Changed My Life. And I talked about sitting, being 12 years old, sitting in the school library with one of those big, um, like, clunky tape players that looked like the monolith from 2001. And <laughs> with a dodgy headphone, I only worked in one side unless you held it in place. And pressing nice. play and listening to Usual Illusion 2. And that bit after the first, about what a minute into civil war which opened was the first song on the album um like there's this power chord that crashes in and then everything kind of goes rah and that moment changed my life just that one power chord just like bolt up right oh this is this is it this is music this is what i love um goosebumps never looked back and that was my gateway into you know what started off as rock guitar music but then began, then you know as you get older you join the dots and you you follow the tra- you follow the trails and you know you you gain an appreciation for loads and loads more and you know you go I mean yeah your... there's a there's um it's much easier to draw a line from uh, Guns N' Roses to Manic Street Preachers than it is from yeah. Do they Subst- know I mean, substantially easier. Uh, I mean, <laughs> particularly the usual illusion albums because James Dean Bradfield and Sh- and Richie Edwards went to Tower Records during the recording of the first Manics album. To or mm. no, the recording of it was ninety one. So it would have been the recording of um, during a recording session anyway. To queue up at midnight for, to buy Usual Illusion one uh, from Tower Records in um, in Piccadilly Circus, as it used to be. Uh, wow. Uh, so you know there is a direct link there, but yeah, that was my gateway into into rock music, and from there I went to Nirvana, and from Nirvana to to you know Smashing Pumpkins, and then into and then another direction into Blur and Pulp, and and then you split off into the Smiths and Suede, and you go back to the Beatles, and and then suddenly the entire world of music is contained in your head, um, and the Manics were part of that because I fell in love with the romanticism of rock music like really early. Um, like all of my favorite bands were like mythology bands, bands that had more to them than just, you know, you press play and listen. Like they yeah. were bands that you read about. There were bands that you, that you fell in love with. There were bands where you, you learned about them. And, um, I think it's cause I've always been attracted to like, to romance and mythology. And, um, so that's how I approach music as well. And so, you know, I love Nirvana because there's a mythology to Nirvana, a tragic mythology, but the mythology was there. Um, and then, obviously, you know, if you're that level of music, of a music fan, you get you read the music press. So I read Enemy, and Melody Maker, and Kerrang on a kind of rotation system. Uh, and I'm it couldn't have been very long into starting reading the music press that the Holy Bible came out, and uh, I read interviews with uh, with the band. I read stories about them. I read interviews with Richie and Nicky and and James. Um, and I I followed the drama around the Holy Bible way before I heard it, um, before I heard oh, really? any of the music. Yeah, I, I fell in love with with reading about them. I was like, this band is incredible. Just I just I loved them from reading about them, and then um, and then a mate of mine gave me a tape of Gold Against the Soul rather than the Holy Bible, even though that's the one I'd been reading about. The first one I listened to was Gold Against the Soul. Um, so then suddenly you've got like that preposterous intro to sleep flower that everyone except the manics love uh i it's like it, the truth universally acknowledged of manics fans is everyone loves sleep flower except the manics uh and you know from there i went i also realized that i already knew latricessity error and motorcycle emptiness i hadn't connected that they were the same band but i already knew those songs they'd filtered through yeah. the world of singles right yeah exactly and yeah. so and after that i just became a voracious 
Mannix obsessive cliche from that well, point onwards. It's interesting you use that word because, I mean, you know, you've written the biography on Terry Pratchett, you've written like and curated an ersatz mm. sort of biography on the Mannix. Yeah, it became maybe, a lot I mean, more maybe. of a bi- it became a lot more of a biography than it was intended to be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think I remember you saying that. Um, uh, it's interesting, actually. I'm, I don't know. I don't think many people will actually like know this, but we've never actually spoken. We haven't. <laughs> we've talked through emails and Twitter. Yeah. We've um, corresponded, but yeah, yeah. So we've corresponded. Yeah, but I, I know that you kind of went into it, uh, kind of. Uh, you were going to be more of, of of a facilitator in many regards than than an active part. I, I, yeah. I know that you were going to do a couple of the essays, but yeah, um, that was the idea. I'd I'd write the introduction. Uh, I'd write, and it got away from you, right? One, yeah, exactly. There was a bit of mission yeah. creep. Uh, so I was, uh, it, it's that sort of like obsessive nature, and I think you have to have that in order to write something as detailed mm-hmm. as the Terry Pratchett book is, and sort of as expansive as the Mannix book is. Like, have you always been that obsessive about? music is it just music is it things in general uh i'm i've always been a yeah i i, I mean obsessive is probably a is why well, it's probably an accurate word isn't it uh, <laughs> i've always been somebody who loves deeply and and when right. i get into something i really get into it like you know i i become fascinated and obsessed like, i remember once my mum my mum taking me to a party like like you know a grown ups party uh, like some family friends kind of thing when i was about 13 and we we're getting in the out of the car to go in and i remember my mum turns to me and saying just remember mark not everyone wants to talk to you about nirvana and star trek and it was <laughs> that's a devastating thing to say mm. uh, because i was boring i was a nerd like i I've, i'm a nerd about all the things that i love i'm, I'm intrinsically that's why i like writing biographies because you get to go deep and be a nerd on the thing that you're researching you get like you're you become professionally nerdy and that's right. that's wonderful i like you get to kind of completely like when i was doing the pratchett biography yeah, I re- I love his books, so I I got to reread all of them via uh, audiobook mostly. I got to sit in the British Library and f- find articles he'd written in the nineteen seventies. I got to sit in another library and go through the press archive and read every single interview he'd ever given. And like I became, I got to be encyclopedic. I got to learn. I got to be. I got to think deeply about those books that I loved and um and the context of where they sat in his life and. Uh, the kind of and and connecting the dots and all of that and that I found that fascinating because it's what I've always done. I've always loved music biographies. I've always loved the music press. I've always loved kind of sketching out that uh, sketching out those details and following the and following the clues and piecing it all together. And the Mannix one was was no exception. I, I, like you say, it wasn't meant to be that. It was meant to be. I will write one article. I will write one chapter. I will I will write an introduction. I will write one chapter. And I'll write an afterword, and then everyone else, and I, then I'll find great writers to write about everything else. And I even was, I was even like, and I'll write whichever album I'm left with. I'll get people to, right. we'll, 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 we'll ask people to pitch what albums they want, uh, and I'll kind of work out what the best shape of the book is based on what people want to write about, and you know, because you want, I didn't want to just like have like five dry kind of, not nothing that is dry, but five like very music journalisty kind of um, mm, like. Yeah. Like very kind of music nerdy spotty deep dives into an album uh, I wanted it because I, I, I know I wanted some personal stuff I wanted like people's personal experiences I wanted like um, heartfelt essays I wanted what albums meant to people 
and I wanted proper music criticism. I wanted like lots. Of, I wanted lots of different angles. So I needed it needed to have a shape. It needed to be. Um, it needed to feel like it wasn't all one thing and everything flowed. So I had to. So that's why I got everyone to sort of pitch three or two or three or whatever um, records they'd like to do and what their take on it would be. So then I yeah. could mix and match it and get it all. And I was like, I'll I'll just do whatever I get left over with, um, which was rewind the film. Probably unsurprisingly, really. I mean, I love rewind the film, so I was fine. Uh, so that was my plan. I was going to write the introduction. I was going to write an out. I was going to write three thousand words on rewind the film, and that was it. Um, then somebody dropped out. The person doing for really good reasons. The person doing um, this is my truth. Some of yours dropped out at last minute, and I. That's actually probably my favourite Manix album. So I was kind of like, right. well, okay, I'll write that. That's all right. I'll write that one. That won't be that won't I'll be difficult. That won't be difficult to write. That'll be fine. And then I started think, realizing a lot of wanted to, what I wanted to say about rewind the film. I also wanted to say about this is my truth musically at least. So I was like, I'm going to repeat myself a lot. So I kind of so I changed tack. So in the end, um, I wrote a short story for rewind the film. I was like, I will yeah. distill the themes because it's like it's it's far enough into the book. That I feel like I could take a risk. You know, if someone's got that far, then they, right. The uh, structure had been well established. Yeah, by exactly. A, album. What what album is it? Uh, eleven, I think. Eleven. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so ten or eleven. So I thought, yeah, by that point, easy. That's fine. I'll do something different. People, the, the reader will be will be ready to read a different type of thing by then. And it's just one chapter. And so I just sort of distilled the themes of rewind the film, and then reverse engineered a plot that matched what I felt those themes were um, mm. and and kind of tried to write a short story that had that kind of melancholy tone of that album. And then, so then I've done that. <laughs> I've already written something close to 10,000 words when you added the when you added the, the introduction and the two essays together. And then I was like, well, I need something to connect the, to connect the articles. Like, it can't just be a chapter on each album because that's not the whole story. You're not getting the whole story just on the albums. So I was like, I'll just, uh, I'll just do a, like a timeline. I'll just sort of do the, just the key, a quick, just a couple you know, of, yeah, just yeah. a couple of pages between each chapter that will outline what happened to the band uh, up to that point in between. And How did I that couple of pages go. Uh, that ended up about thirty thousand words. Yeah. <laughs> um, it ended. I ended up get just realized. I realized really quickly though. I was just researching it in the same way that I was. I'd have researched it as if it was a full biography. And you know, I was del- delving deep into old press, uh, like old interviews, and I had like five different biographies of the band that I was like cross-referencing facts against, uh, cross-referencing them against each other and against interviews of the time. And um, and I realised that I was basically just writing an, a full biography in bullet points. That's that's how it came out. And that's so the book ended up being much more of a biography than and it's. I think I'm, I'd be comfortable enough in saying it is the most kind of thorough biography of the band that's been written because and mm. it actually ended up being, and then it became like a challenge actually to, to try and keep that interesting and to like make sure that that because lists of, I didn't want it to be like the appendices at the back of Lord of the Rings like it wasn't just like <laughs> I, I you know it had it's to all that very dry information yeah I wanted it to, so so actually you, you there's um you know there's a real I hopefully I've tried to get a real flow to it and there's a sense of storytelling in the way it's put together and in the the tone of two things balanced the two facts balanced against each other and the way it's worded and the way there's jokes kind of quietly put in it um yeah. that you get from like the rhythm of it creates creates little bits of humor and and I I tried you know when you're doing the the 
the part the period of time around Richie going missing then it goes into very very sort of clips staccato kind of very dry very factual just the facts and then interpretation necessary yeah yeah exactly and then when you go because you don't want people to necessarily be interpreting that you want them you need to give people exactly you you don't you don't want to be editorializing that so this is exactly what we found with the podcast mm. or well I, I did all the research for the for the podcast because the other guys were not Mannix fans when we started mm. and I found that as as much you know as interpretation as we can do around lyrics and all of those things when it got to the Richie stuff like not just disappearance but including like the incidents of self-harm and stuff like mm. that the best way forward was just this is what happened Mm. And I'm putting absolutely no opinion or interpretation into that at all. Yeah, exactly. Like you can you can get a little bit, particularly later in the band, you can you can start to be a bit more. Um, you, know, you can start to put your own spin on it, and you start to yeah. be a little bit more kind of take more of an ownership of, the, of of your feelings about those records. But that serious stuff, yeah, you got to give just give people the facts, and then anyone then people are free to interpret them how they like. You just need to make sure you're giving them. You know, the accurate facts um, and actually it's quite good because a lot of work has been done on that case in the last 10 years since there was last anyone yes. seriously documenting it so I was able to do a fairly like um, a fairly kind of uh, comprehensive step-by-step guide of what we know of his last movements so that bit became that was that 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 is almost like a detective case kind of thing it literally is it's a crime almost so you, you're you're piecing it together like evidence it's like a true crime podcast or something and then you mm. get once you get out of that and once you get into the next bit particularly as you get into the sort of post millennium phase of the band then uh then it loosens up and the tone the tone loosens up so it kind of it feels like a lot of fun at the beginning it feels like very serious in the as you get to the, the end of the sort of a third of the way through and then gradually there's a feel a feeling of the narrative loosening up and i started putting in more more not exactly jokes but or asides but there's a there's a kind of humor to them like i i realized well there's a looser tone like yeah as a band after that you know from know your enemy onwards mm. it, as a band in general their output the way they kind of react to themselves and behave they're they're looser yeah, you know, and I think the book reflects that. Yeah, exactly. I also I really enjoyed the uh, once you realise I was like I know it's a cliche that there's somebody that somebody whenever they review a Manic album always says that it's their best one since everything must go. So I yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I made that a running joke through the through the book. I was I, I was determined to <laughs> I was determined to actually to prove to, like what like this does somebody say about every album. And they did. I found ex- everything, everyone except rewind the film. I found somebody in some article saying the but saying it was the best, their best albums since everything was go, including both solo albums that came out in two thousand and five, whenever it was. Someone uh, two thousand six. So someone mm. wants to uh, genuinely go on record and say that I killed the zeitgeist is the the best Manic project since everything must go. At that, at that point. point, yeah. I mean. No, I mean you could, make, you could make a compelling argument for that. I think, and, and I, I will, and I, I will get to that of making a compelling argument for for the for the musical, the the compositional skills of Nicky Wire. Oh yes, Wyatt. yes. But, um, that's, that's later on. In the but episode. yeah, you've got to admit it's a big swing. <laughs> like it's yeah, a, yeah. And I, I, I deeply admire it. But then again, I think it's a there's a a kind of. I guess it's a kind of, it's that thing of, of willful awkwardness that in itself is a very Nicky Wire trait 
uh, wanted so by going. Oh yeah, this the, Nicky Wire's weird album is the best thing they've done since he's done since everything was go. That's like a. Uh, it's I think it was NME that said that. But it's, it's you know it's willful I mean, the awkwardness. Whole album's weird. I mean we we had uh, we had Greg Haver on the podcast mm. who 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 worked on that album, yeah. and he revealed to us that obviously you know it's the solo album of the bassist from Manic Street Preachers, and there's not a single note of bass on the album. Isn't there? <laughs> there's no bass on the album at all. That's incredible. That's absolutely <laughs> it's just, incredible. It's mixed with the guitar providing a lot of low end. There's but no one, no one played bass on the whole thing. There's an because it's a, there's, no, there's an acoustic going through the whole thing, pretty much, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and you can uh, acoustic guitars are really a Nicky interesting. Wire decision to not play <laughs> it is. any bass. So yeah, so willfully awkward. Yeah, acoustic guitars <laughs> yeah. you get can both they're are really interesting recording instruments because they can both be kind of percussive and bright, and they can be low endy and and yeah and sort of bottomy. Uh, mm. As the vicar yeah, said, which is actually like, a nightmare to uh, to mix if you're like doing it at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine it. Is. Um, but yeah, so yeah, it was that became a, a, a nice running joke. I, I got I, I found yeah. every review that said that it was this is their best album since Everything Must Go, uh, except for Rewind the Film. But that means that that became notable in that it was the only album that no one said that about. So I was able to put to put. Sadly, no. Sadly, nobody said it was their best album since everything was go. Like, hadn't if it wasn't the fact that somebody said that about every album, I wouldn't. But you wouldn't have bothered noting that fact. But um, yeah, it becomes kind of defined in opposition. Uh, it's like it's notable by absence, which is um, you know that whole when you get it. It was quite a satisfying project in that way to find well, those, that, the way those that, beats. That, uh, the way that that biography expanded and expanded mm. and expanded on you. How how much of that is to do with how much you love digging into that stuff and how much of it was to do with just how fucking interesting Manic Street Preachers are? I, that's a really good question. I would like to think if I cared about a band, and, I mean, I wouldn't write about a band that wasn't interesting. So it's kind of right. a... It's it's like you could say, you know, could you do a... a uh, if you were asking, could you do something in that level of detail on any band... Uh, the, the thing is, the answer is no, because I like it's not so much that I haven't got the skill to do so. It's that not, yeah, as you say, not every band is worthy of that level of of interest. But so I think it was a perfect storm of, in, in fact, three. There were three things there. One is, I I like to think my personality lends itself to being, you know, a, a rigorous biographer because I I have an obsessive mm. interest in the thing. I'm I just allow myself to get to fall in love with the with the subjects and and I enjoy the process of doing it. So that the first so firstly there's that mixing that with the fact that it's the Manic Street Preachers. So there is plenty to read. There's plenty to say. There's plenty to find out, as you say, and not just because they're an interesting band. They're also a band with a 35 year career. So you know, yes. Um, and then the third point. I possibly may only have had two points. I've lost, yeah. <laughs> I've lost my way. There was a third point if it comes to me, but I think I might have covered it in my in, in the second point. But yeah, it's 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 a mixture of those things. I, I don't I don't think anyone, you know, I, I don't think you could write a biography of that depth in that way of any band. Um, but also, I think my personality lends it lends itself to like any band I take on. I do as much. I would have done it as much as I could in that direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the 
one of the really interesting things about the book is is that it's not i mean it has the biography aspects but it's so much more than a biography mm. it has yeah. all of these different lenses and these various mm. sort of takes on things and it does like like you're saying it ranges from the critical to the very personal to mm. the from the factual to the fictional you know like yeah, the short exactly. story you mentioned like what is it about manic street preachers that made you think that that approach was was the best for them I think it's because I, I mean, for a start, I never, the biographical element of the book was never intended. It kind of, it was meant to be kind of telling the story of the band through what that, what, what different people think of each record. Um, so yeah. it wouldn't necessarily tell a biographical story. It Like there would be an implied biography in it, but it wouldn't be, but it would be more kind of, I mean, it'd be more the story of the, a story told in tones. Rather than uh, you know, like, sure. it'd be like if you, uh, like if you shone a bright light on a statue, and then took a po- picture of it, and then you took the statue out of the picture and just left the reflections. Um, like I wanted to tell the story of the band in that way, you by you seeing the shape of where of where they are and yeah. how they, um, and how you know the light refracts off them essentially, in the light being their music and how it bounces out into other people okay and... so i was with i was with you <laughs> yeah i got I a bit convoluted didn't it being their music and it just sort of no that from me. the metaphor didn't quite work at that point but i do <laughs> I, but the spirit of my state of my of my statement remains uh it was to you know it wasn't about the statue would be that would be the, the hard story the facts the story uh, that would be yeah. the, the version that simon price wrote you know, a, a, like, right? Yeah, exactly. Whereas I wanted to write, and it was much more impressionistic. It was the impression of the of the band. So you didn't need the shape of the story. You didn't need you didn't need the hard facts of the story. You could take that out, and you just have the shape of the impressions that they left in the world. That's gotcha. yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's a, yeah. Uh, the because of the timeline, it became a biography. Uh, it can be read entirely as a biography. But you're right. I, the original I originally wanted to approach it through through the those that set of lenses. And yeah, it's it's because the Manics uniquely lend themselves to that, and there are there are two reasons for that. Um, I know I know what the two reasons are. I'm not going to run out okay. of reasons halfway definitely through. Definitely two. Time. There's it's definitely one, two. No, I might okay. think of an, I might think of another one halfway through, but okay. But one is the depth of their back catalogue and how musically varied they are. Yeah, the, meaning the, you. One of the massive things we found on the on the podcast and was very surprising to the people who. The other hosts who had not listened to Manchester Producer very much before was how varied their their output is. Like it's yeah. you'd struggle to find many other bands with that much variation in their output. Yeah, this is about a band that wrote Sculpture of Man and um, recorded uh, Show Me the Wonder. You know, they're yeah. Yeah, like yeah, they're yeah. not. Yeah. That's not the same band. But Four spend seven pounds and together stronger. Come on, Wales. Exactly. Yeah. There's like yeah. there's it, there. Are, you, if you if you work at it, you can find the connective tissue. But it's you know there there is a huge and the, the flavor of the records changes so much. Like I, um, the first two are the only two that really work as a as a proper pair. Like Gold Against yes. the Soul is the, is the album is an album that you would expect to hear from the band that made Generation Terrorists. But yeah, that's true. From that point onwards, the next album is never the that album that you'd expect from the band that made the previous one. I, yeah, like you know, everything must go, and the Holy Bible couldn't be more different. This is my truth. Like you might think, 
on surface it's the closest you get i think like there's a surface level connection between that and everything must go yeah Yeah. it's from in the orchestra but it's a far darker colder record and like you would more expect they i think if you were writing the weirder as well yeah much so weird I don't think that record ever gets enough credit for being so weird. But you did, like, um, but you'd expect you couldn't, like, if you were the lazy writer version of that of the band, inventing them in your head, the album they followed up Everything Must Go With would have been What's a Story, Morning Glory. You know, it would have right, been. Right, exactly. We, we actually talked about it at the time, like, they could have, they probably would have had probably a bit more of a successful career if after Everything Must Go, they put out four more albums like Everything Must Go. Yeah. If they if they could have put out and like proper indie rock, uh, if they could mm. they could written more indie rock bangers. And there were there were a few, you know. You stole this. If the, if every song on um on this is my true tell me all sounded like you stole this one from my heart. Well, I don't but, I don't want that. I mean, no, neither do I. <laughs> I. I struggle with one of that. Well, I, this might it's my yeah, least favorite exactly. manic single. Uh, although apart Same. from the yes. apart from the line, I've got to stop smiling. It gives the wrong impression, which is I think one of Nikki's finest finest lyrics. It but, has its redeeming factors, but the rest of it can can get in the bin. Um, but it I'm, was yeah. <laughs> but it was very telling that that wasn't the first single. I'm sure the label would have wanted that as the first single. Because it's the most immediate, most obviously radio friendly, like the one that would have felt like a, it would have been a huge smash number one. Probably would have stayed at number one longer than Tolerate did. Do you know? Do you know what they were gonna go for? No, go on. The, the band were pushing for Be Natural, as the first <laughs> single. Um, wow! And, wow! And the B side would have been If You Tolerate This, Your Children Will Be Next, and it took I, the I, record label saying, "If you add a chorus to that, we will put that out as the first single." Amazing. I, I knew it was yeah. a bit. I knew it was written as a B side. Um, I didn't realize that. Insane. A band who very rarely know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, but that's. I mean, B Natural is 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 also. It's not as good an example as Tolerators, but it would have. But it would have had the same spirit in that. You know, it you could have the album in some ways. I think. Yeah. If you if you were choose, if you were doing the most commercial route, you would have released "You Saw the Sun from My Heart" and "Tsunami" as the first two singles. You wouldn't have yeah. released "Tolerate" and "Everlasting," um, and. That's the thing. thing. Is an odd pick, yeah. Yeah, I, and uh, and that's the opening song on the record. And that's what's great. I love that so much. Yeah, it's, and they they're good at that. Um, so what I like, uh, so why I knew that to return to the point, why I knew that I could the 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 this band would work with this format, is because on the first for the on the first hand first count, their music is so different that it would be style that each chapter was going to be stylistically different. And right. they, and also tonally, they have a lot. If you take away the music, they they, they tonally say things very different. Like even uh, even like as Nicky Wire albums, the tone lyrically of "Send Away the Tigers" and the tone of oh, I'll just drop my headphone and the tone of um, of uh, "Rewind the Film" are completely different kinds of records. Oh and yeah. Resistance is futile is a completely different kind of record to Futurology, and you know. So I knew that that would work. And then the other thing is because I know, because I'm a Manix fan, I know Manix fans, and I know that there is a, a, that people have different relationships with the band in different ways. So and I knew an eloquent bunch as well. Exactly, and I knew I'd find people who could be really, really, who could write really good critical analysis. Um, like your your chapter is a perfect example of that uh andre's chapter on know your enemy is like you know the um uh, um on tigers mine on this is my truth i think they're all kind of you know they're they are deep dive kind of very nerdy 
arguably quite male music journalisty kind of yes, approaches. They are, they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I also knew that you know there, there's another side. There are people who engage um, emotionally and not technically, and they would have had a different experience. Um, and there are people who would have engaged intellectually but not emotionally and they would have yeah. had a different experience um so I, I knew that there'd be this this range of opinions i knew you know there are some people who who engaged with the band in this incredibly emotional way um like the who the people who would have been obsessively talking about like 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 richie rich cult of richie types um in the mid 90s and people who then there were people who would have come to them later and because they're a band that means so much to, to to their fans i mean arguably any band means a lot to their fans that's why they're fans but there's something about the manics though mm, I, I don't know what it is it's it a mythology does, that we, they we encourage uh you know a very mm, particular bond between yeah, them and their fans I think. exactly and partly it's because of the metatextual element of the music the, the, there are so of, of the of the songs. There are so much you can you can pick through it lyrically, musically, musically. I think actually is the 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 great unrepresented truth of the Manics is that is that there's so is that they're an interesting band musically, uh, as well as whereas yeah. people get tend to get focused on the lyrics or on the bangers and the rock stuff. When actually I think they've they've always been a really interesting musical band. I think James Lee Bradfield and Sean Moore um, are incredible composers of music. Um, they yeah they are um, they geniuses. I, I genuinely think they are. I think that like James and and Sean's like abilities to get across very complex ideas in pop songs is unmatched. Yeah, absolutely is. And they know when to be restrictive and when to, and, and tight and when to when to let it all be be comfortable and there to be space and air in the songs and that's that's i think and you hear them learn as they go along um which i find really really interesting but like there's an interview with i can't remember uh about um i think oh no it's an interview, it's an interview i did <laughs> with nikki about um <laughs> Uh, this is like the fourth time I'm going to mention Rewind the Film I did not intend to talk about that album so much but I interviewed him about Rewind the Film I did a a track by track interview uh, for the Quietus and um, uh, he was talking about I Miss the Tokyo Skyline and like they'd recorded this acoustic song just you know folky acoustic sad song and they just then they off then they went off to I don't know watch some sport or something um, left Sean to get on with it to do what I wrote and in their studio that they owned and uh they came back to find there was like cables everywhere and the loads of stuff just like tangled together and and he was like under the mixing desk plugging stuff in uh and when they asked him what he was doing he was like that he said i was trying to make it make a backing track that sounded like the bullet train uh which <laughs> you know like i that's i, I love that i lo- like that's that's i don't think anyone ever gives that band credit the credit for that sort of thing um, for the the technical ideas um, and for capturing those feelings, so yeah, I knew that that's the other the other thing that I knew because of all those elements, you could tell the impressionistic story of the band, and you couldn't do that with many bands like um, like like you couldn't do that with like the Libertines or something. You know, there's an interesting story no. to tell if you wanted to tell the story of the Libertines, but you couldn't do it by analysing by by talking about people's intellectual and emotional reactions to their music 
You, know, you couldn't even, you'd probably even struggle with a band like Suede. I, I think you might even struggle with a band, with a band like the Beatles. Like, <laughs> even though there's, there's in the same way, not, which is not to, like, I'm not saying the Manics are better than the Beatles. That's not for me to say. I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm going to cut that clip out. That's going to be the trailer <laughs> for the episode. It's just you saying the Manics are better than the Beatles. <laughs> um, but I, I don't think you could, there are, there's hardly any bands. You could do it with Bowie. Um, you could definitely do it with Bowie. Yeah, you could do yeah. it with someone like Smashing Pumpkins, who are a band I really love, and probably and have a sort of similar fan relationship and a similar kind of tonal variety across their career. Uh, you yeah. need you need those two kind of things to be able to do it. Do it like this. You couldn't do it with a band who sounded you couldn't sounded the same on every record, for example. That's no, that's true. Yeah, that is true. I mean. Green Day, like, someone like, like that. Of bands aren't that sort of like wildly varied. You get like slow uh, metamorphoses and, mm. and evolutions of sound. You know, I'm thinking of mm. like one of my favorite bands is REM. You know, that there's a there's a slow, yeah, uh, steady sort of change of sound rather than something mm. that happens on an album by album basis. And yeah. REM are a really good example of it. And the, yeah, they're a band who are well worth writing a biography about, and they're a band whose music is well because they're an interesting story. And they're a band whose music is worth celebrating. But I don't think you could do it in the same way and have it work as well. I think you'd no. I think that a lot of you know a lot of the stuff that you say about life's rich pageant is going to be stuff mm. that you would also say about document you know yeah they're not exactly like wildly stylistically different or anything and i think mm. a lot of people's reactions to those records have probably been the same <laughs> you know, yeah both like yeah, highly exactly. regarded indie rock albums so yeah and um, yeah that like yeah. some of the most interesting stuff about the manic street preachers is that uh you know maybe a, a, a third not not quite a third but a, a decent amount of their output has been considered by varying bits of their fan bases as failures you know there are people out there who absolutely hate know your enemy and there's people out there who hate lifeblood and there's people Mm. out there who hate send away the tigers and Mm. those are three albums in a row yeah exactly (laughs) they're all different people and and yeah you won't find people who sections of the fan base those will be their favorites you know and you can take it take an art band like rem and you can play murmur and then play someone murmur and then play someone around the sun right different bands Uh, yeah and there's by yeah. then they've they've, but those are those are what twelve albums. There's thirteen apart? albums between them or something. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, <laughs> like, play someone. Play someone. The Holy Bible and everything must go. Yeah. Different bands. Different bands. Yeah. Only like play eighteen someone, months apart. Play someone. Gold against the soul and the Holy Bible, and it's different. Yeah. Bands. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, yeah. it's only it's only Generation Terrorist and Gold Against the Soul that really feel, uh, and to a lesser extent. Everything must go, and and this is my truth. But it's but that 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 break point, which I think defines the band's career, the, the, that left turn between those three records, between from Gold Against the Soul to the Holy Bible to Everything Must Go, the, achieving those three albums in a row um, is what gives it, it defines the band's musical like musical sort of palette. You know, it's like yeah. we can do this. We are we are never going to go in a straight line, and you know everything. Uh, then this is my truth is followed by an album as awkward and and weird as Know Your Enemy, and uh, which is followed by something as glacial and strange as Lifeblood, which is followed by something as like 
as kind of rocking and uh, full of like spit and joy as Tigers. Um, <laughs> and if you didn't have Channel for Play Gloves in the middle, you'd probably pair that and, and postcards together, wouldn't you? But yeah, but Journal for Play Gloves breaks it up, and then and then you go from postcards to this this completely stark rewind the film to mac, the mac, sort of maximalist electronica indie of uh, indie rock of futurology and then i think futurology resistance is futile and ultra vivid lament all have there's a, i think there's a through line between those there's not there's as a, much there's distance a thread. Yeah. i don't think there's as much distance between those three eight records i think maybe the band are settling into what they are now after 35 years but yeah maybe I don't know. I still feel like they have some uh, mm. some surprises mm. left. Well, like, I mean, I, I, that must have been very irritating for you, though. You know, being very close to finishing a book <laughs> and they release another album. Spring an album, yeah. I got away with it. I was really lucky. Um, I it kind of appears as kind of like almost like that afterword that you were talking about earlier. It kind of yeah. appears as like a smaller section of yeah. The it book, becomes right? it becomes the epilogue. Yeah, um, because I finished the book. I delivered it in May, I think. And it must have been like a three weeks later that they that they dropped the Ultra Vivid Lament <laughs> like announcement. Um, but um, they knew, I think. I think that was planned. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. They must <laughs> yeah. have known. But um, Gillian at Hall or Nothing, who does their PR, uh, I got hold of her, um, who I'd met before, um, because she also handles Catherine Ad's PR. So, and I've yes. written I've written about Catherine. And I know her. So I I so I kind of had an like she was predisposed to at least hear me out and she <laughs> um was able to send me the album like ridiculously early uh like, right, like okay, almost cool. as, almost like within days of that announcement I, I she sent she sent me the album to listen to um because uh i was like look i, I just need to be able to write a, i, I want to write an afterword where i talk about this album because otherwise like if we if if i can if i can get i need it now because the book has to go to print way before the album comes out, um, so I need so I need it soon. And if I don't have it, my book's going to be out of date immediately. And if I do have it, then you know it's future proof for another two years, three years. Um, and fortunately, Gosh, that's awfully nice, isn't it? Uh, yeah, like, for, didn't, they didn't have to do that. Yeah, she went back to management and asked. Like she went, and I presumably, and presumably, it would have found its way back to the band for permission. Mm. Because, but um, what was what I quite liked was that. Uh, I meant that I was basically one of the first journalists to hear it, but probably one of the last reviews to be published. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> the book came out, the book came out like a month after the album had been out, so everyone had already written that, done their write-ups. Um, but I, yeah, I, I had it to listen to in May, um, May or June. I Tell you what, actually, I, I think we've got you beat on that because our proper review on it comes out in March. Oh right, okay. <laughs> but yeah, I had, I had, I had basically I had like two weeks to 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 get to grips with it, and I, I was like, I couldn't write. I knew I couldn't write about it in the detail that uh, any of the other chapters have been written about because yeah. two weeks is not none enough. of the context had yeah, dropped either. Exactly. You know? um, yeah. So I, uh, it was more about kind of what was about kind of the. I was able to use it as an example of how context defines music. How um, yeah. this this is a record being released into this set of strange circumstances. It was we were we were still in lockdown when I was reviewing it, so it was like it was you couldn't you know you couldn't get away from that idea of being of you couldn't get away from the idea of being uh, of of the pandemic hanging over it. 
And I so I mm. wrote about that instead. I wrote about how this is what this album feels like right now because this is what's happening as as it's released. But I don't know what the context of this record is going to be in ten years' time and how. Like I don't think people will listen to it and think about the pandemic, but um, particularly if they weren't, you know, if they come to it later. But because yeah, I don't, because yeah. although I think that you can read the you can read a kind of pandemic narrative into parts of it intentionally or not, um, like. You'd have to you'd have to be looking for them, but um, for now it was a pandemic record purely because it came out during COVID. Uh, mm-hmm. and so I was able to write about the context and how I saw the record in those terms, um, and then but also that you know that was but that perfectly kind of encapsulated what the book is about is that each record has a context, and that context is unique, so that is unique to each person who hears it. Um, so speaking of those unique people how did you go about like choosing the i I think i came onto the process quite late i yeah you were relatively late uh yeah i mean i thought because i am fortunately because i am a music journalist i've written and i've written for years um i i used to write for drowning sound i was a i was one of the sort of main writers of drowning sound for years Mm. um so there are people i already knew i could ask straight away so i knew i wanted andre um who did uh who used to be the reviews editor of drowning sound I knew he would do a really good job or something. Uh, I knew I knew I wanted Catherine to write the forward um, yeah. because I knew she'd have great things to say. I actually originally I offered her Generation Terrorists, um, but then I was like, actually, I'll I'll pay her to write the forward because, like that way, I don't know, it, it'll be it feels like more of a of a benefit of, of her. Um, Rianne, I who wrote the Generation Terrorists, also you one, can put her on the cover. Exactly. So yeah. I mean, it's not. It's, it's, <laughs> It's, it, it, it gave, and it gave it a lovely. She knew exactly why I was asking her, but you know we're friends. We've been friends for years, so she know, so she was okay with it. But but it gave it a legitimacy. Having yeah, yeah, absolutely Catherine, who is a bona fide Manchester Preachers collaborator, um, having her name on the cover is a like it gave the book legitimacy. But um, Rianne, I worked with at the Guardian. Uh, I'd read her book Clamped Down, which is about the, which is a feminist interpretation, a sort of a feminist slant on nineties indie. And uh, that's and right. she wrote another book about the Rebecca Riots, which is about um, which is a kind of cult of cross dressing rebellion in mm. in nineteenth century Wales. Uh, and yeah, you know, so I I knew she'd be and she wrote she wrote she, she'd already written for a uh, a kind of deep dive on the Holy Bible called Triptych that came out a few years ago. So, yeah, yeah. so I knew I wanted her to do it because I knew she'd do a really good job. Uh, Dom Gourlay, um I couldn't, I, I didn't think would speak to me again if I didn't ask him to. <laughs> um, who I also knew from Drowning Sound. Um, and then after, and then there were a couple of oh, Phoenix. I knew Phoenix was a massive Mannix fan, and I knew they, and Emma O'Brien. Like they're both people I knew, I know professionally rather than personally, but I, I know their work, and I knew they both would have really interesting takes. Um, and then after that, it was putting the word out and seeing who seeing who came back. And yeah. I, I was very specific that I didn't want to have white male thirty five year old music journalists as the yeah. I saw that. That's the tweet I saw, and I thought I'm going to respond <laughs> because that's that's exactly what I am. <laughs> the, the the tragedy is that that's that a lot of that loads of people did because. You know, speaking as a white male music, forty-year-old music journalist, um, 
like you 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 get into the habit of going oh, why not they can only say no can't they whereas uh right yes exactly. people from genuinely diverse backgrounds are a little bit more kind of like are, are, are aware of the back foot they're starting on and yeah. maybe don't take the, those big swings which is the tragedy of it but um so yeah i was hoping and yeah we found some uh i managed to find um i've got that well it wasn't as, di- as diverse as i would have liked it i couldn't find exactly the right you know the ex- balance I, yeah well it could have been what it could have been better but it was better than it is better also could have been much 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 worse so it's a reasonably diverse bunch of people yes. um and uh yeah i mean and, and that was important because i wanted different viewpoints i wanted people in different ages as well i didn't want everyone to be in their 40s and late 30s so i think the youngest person is in their mid-20s um and uh, yeah it just uh so i knew yeah it was just i just put out the word um it's a small project there wasn't very much money for it as you know because <laughs> well because I, mean, I think that's more money than i've like that, that i've ever heard of writing before so yeah uh, um it's uh so yeah i like you know i had to find i'd sorry i mean i don't mind saying i paid everybody 100 quid um except for Catherine, who charged me a little bit more but so i knew i had to i i I knew that's celebrities for you. I know, uh, but I I know. So I had to, uh, you know. But the the advance for a book like this is only fifteen hundred quid, and you get that in three goes on right. si- on I mean, it signature. Seemed, it seems pretty clear that for for everybody involved, it's not yeah. a, a money making exactly. Like, so I, 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 you know, I but I couldn't I couldn't ask anyone to do it for free. So I had to be like uh, so. Um, uh, so yeah, I had to find a way of doing it, um, and I'll have I'll probably make like sixty or seventy quid a year <laughs> for the, off that <laughs> off that now forever. Um, that'll keep you ticking over. That's yeah, nice. that's um, <laughs> if that. But yeah, so I, I put the word out and found just got people to submit. Partly it was about uh, what their experience was. Could they were they good enough to write it? You know, that's a really really important deal, important part of it. Were they good enough? Is the most important. But also, I needed people with different, uh, different ideas and approaches. You know, I wanted people. I wanted to, like to know that somebody was going to be able to write a super like um, personal take. Like Tracy Wise, who wrote about um, pest cards from a young man, wrote about who uh, she founded. Um, I knew she'd be a great person to ask because she founded. Um, Safe gigs for women, the charity. Yeah. Um, which is yeah, she's which is really interesting. Like she's an interesting person, so I knew she'd be she'd be good. Uh, and she wrote about how this is how postcards from a young man came out around the time that her father died. So that record has that context for her. It's never going to have anything else. Erica Viola. It's one of my favorite uh, pieces in the book. Actually. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? I thought it was, and it, because it's and it's so personal. It's so completely personal. Um, yeah. No one else could have written that. I actually An album think that I do not like, but I loved her her writing on it. Mm. Yeah, because um, I actually I think maybe some of the more music journey ones with the best. Right. I'm including I'm including mine in <laughs> in it as well. I I think if we'd have swapped those round, if I'd have thrown you know your enemy and I'd written send away the tigers and Andre had written this is my truth tell me yours, I don't think the the end results would have been drastically different to the pieces that went in the book. Um, no, probably not. Like I love know your enemy. I love it. 
<laughs> so do I. Like, not. I'm not saying that they'd be they'd be identical. Obviously, everyone bought their own skills and their own, and everyone's a skilled writer, so it was always going to be good. And everyone bought their own interpretations. But they were all. But those three were all quite. You know, um, they were they were a music critics angle on the on those records, um, and you know they were journalistic. And uh, yeah, oh, I'm I'm more than happy to you know be leading the charge on the least uh, interesting thing in the book. I, <laughs> I suppose the thing that um like that really drew me to it was was the idea of being able to talk about uh like the underdog in, in yeah career yeah um although which is and, and, and we did it on the podcast and and what we actually found is that everybody fucking loves that record now yeah I found that a lot recently uh I've seen yeah. I I. If you look at the comments, I, I, because I joined a load of when the because I knew I had the book coming out, I joined a load of Manix Facebook groups and stuff. Um, yeah. Although Facebook fandom absolutely annoys me in, in, in all in all yeah. of its forms, yeah, 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 but uh, yeah. but it's you know it's, it's useful to sell books, and also I end up getting dragged into conversations because I can't help myself. Yeah, but, um, sure. What I noticed was yeah, there was the discussion around. Ultra Vivid Lament. A lot of people were included. Lots of people being extremely up on Lifeblood and extremely down on Resistance is Futile, which yes. I d- didn't expect. The, I mean, the I, interesting I, narrative that sort of occurred out of out of doing the podcast on it. Um, I was very nervous going into Lifeblood because I've always loved that record, but I thought I was going to get a lot of pushback from the hosts and also from mm. the Manix fans that listen to the podcast because I know it has that sort of. You know, it has that air around it as the black sheep of their discography, maybe. And we had Greg Haver on, who produced the album, but we had him on before we'd done our episode on it. So before we'd really engaged with the fan base about what that, you know, what the thoughts on that album were. And there was almost something slightly melancholy about that episode with Greg Haver because he was saying things like, I think we went too far in some places, and I think we made some mistakes here and there. And it, and it, and it, he was he was very disappointed uh, with the critical reaction to that album, um, very specifically the like the review in Q magazine, which uh, mm. has become slightly infamous around the yeah. release of Lifeblood. I think they call it insipid and stuff like that. Mm. And um, and then the episode on Lifeblood came out, and one my uh, my co-hosts loved it, uh, which was very very nice. And then we had this outpouring of all these fans on Twitter saying either that they were currently reassessing the album and seeing it for its worth, or that they had always secretly loved it, or that they had come round to it. And the outpouring of love for Lifeblood was so so massive that Greg Haver then wanted to come back. <laughs> we had him <laughs> on a second episode just so he could kind of celebrate that people liked the album now. Um, so I have a a very special place in my heart for Lifeblood, not mm. just because I've loved the album, but because I have all of that attached to it as well. Mm. I think I brought up the podcast very briefly in the article that I wrote did, for the yeah. book. But um, it's just, yeah, I, I have that personal context attached and, to Lifeblood now. And there's a strange thing with Lifeblood in that I th- I've got a theory that everyone thinks they're the only one that likes it. Like, yes, and we're all <laughs> keeping it a secret from everybody yeah. else. <laughs> Whereas, because I actually I got quite a few pictures for Lifeblood, and that that surprised me because you 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 know I loved like I thought I'd end up doing Lifeblood because I thought that'd be the one that no one else wanted to do, uh, yeah. and actually it was yeah there was like it was actually a more popular choice than some of the more obvious albums, which surprised me. 
Um, well, it's that thing that we were talking about, you know, for every for every album that is a portion of the fan base's least favorite, there's another portion of the fan base where it's mm. their their absolute favorite. I mean, what like one of my favorite things about the book is that it's not 100% like a complete love-in and mm. there are, you know, criticisms, you know, in in the book of some of the music and stuff, which is great and I wanted to I I very specifically wanted to ask you this because it's something that I've been interested in for a little while and we have considered on the podcast we like to do incredibly deep dives on the context and everything and something we often talk about is music criticism and i was reading um obviously you know we're mutual follows on twitter and uh i saw on my timeline you were talking about you had found a review of your terry pratchett book that was less than complimentary mm. and you were kind of dealing with that and you were you know, going through the the mental processing of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you are someone that kind of reads your own reviews. Yeah. <laughs> is 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 that a a tricky tightrope to walk in in terms of you know moving forward into other projects? You know, taking on board other people's criticisms. You know, trying maybe to not mm. get. I mean, you know, you're you're an award winning biographer, but trying not to get uh, too high on the positive reviews and too low on the negative reviews is is that tricky? Uh, It is. I think the problem, the reason I can't stop myself from, I mean, I'm I can't stop myself from reading them. I I, I know loads of people say just don't. I just can't stop myself. No, Um, I'm the same. um, And uh, you know, it's like it's the, the 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 sore that would heal if you could stop picking it, kind of thing. Um, But also, like the validation you get from the good reviews is so great. Oh, <laughs> like and you know, <laughs> you know, I and the Pratchett book got such good like responses that it's well, it's award winning, Mark. It's this guy's award. I don't. Know, it did win an award, like <laughs> it an did, actual yeah, the Locus Award. Yeah. yeah, it won an award. Um, but yeah, you know, but so you know, it's nice to read those because people got it. You know, I wasn't sure people were going to get that book. I, I, the, the people mm. might go, "Who's this bloke? He doesn't have any connection to Terry Pratchett. He's never met him. He's never. Uh, he's not got the. He's not interviewing his best friends. Uh, he's not got or his daughter. He's not got his estate's permission to write it. What right has he got to write this book? Um, but actually, people responded to it really well because when they read it, um, it was clear that it had been written by somebody who really loved the subject. And, right. Yeah. Um, and and also had put the work in, like, um, and um, so it's it was just it's just nice to feel like people got it. To feel like people when you when you create something, you want people to understand you. <laughs> you want people to take away from it what you intended, what you put, what you intended to put into it. Not always, and obviously, music's a bit different because music is more open to interpretation. But um, yeah. you know, I. It's, I I shouldn't have, I, so yeah the the problem with that <laughs> that book is because the reviews had been so good when occasionally you'd get a stinker it just sticks out because you're just like how could but come on <laughs> like everyone knows well, the, the problem the, with that the one, with that one that you, uh, the, the other thing that you said like I I think this is what you're about to say is that it seemed to confirm some things you thought about your own writing. Yes, it said everything that I hoped no one that I that I was worried that people would think about the book and hoped would, right. and hoped they wouldn't. 
Uh, every, like basically, my worst fears was that everyone would think would feel like that. All, or there was another really bad review that was just a Goodreads one. That was literally just been like three one star reviews. Um, the rest have all been four and five, uh, and, and and an award. But like they're um, <laughs> the other one that pissed me off was but but it was like a kind of quite nastily written sort of like this is just a load of old shit he doesn't know what he's talking about and as much as it annoyed me i could kind of laugh that one off because there was no kind of substance to their to their point whereas the the, yeah this one they'd said everything that i really desperately hoped nobody would think was it was it very eloquent as well it was it was quite well written yeah and it was like oh no oh no (laughs) please no (laughs) um well here's the thing the reason i've asked you about that is not to just sort of make you relive it um but i i think the manics do the same thing i think they're a very reactive band and i think that's why they're so varied and we've talked about Hmm. uh you know from one album to the next you can't really you never know what they're going to do and i think every album is a react a reaction to the last album but what's interesting is and i I opened my article with lifeblood uh with 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 this bit their retrospective views on albums line up with the contemporary criticisms yes they do that's true when lifeblood came out they were like look we've matured this is us trying to find a new version of the band we're tearing up what we used to do and this is you know we're proud of what we've done and then by the time you get to I think it was 2013 that they were on BBC Breakfast. They were saying, well, you know, we've Mm. done some bad records. And I think that that is down to the reviews. I think they read their own reviews as well. Oh, they definitely do. They absolutely... Nicky Wire reads every single word ever written about him. 100%. Well, Nicky Wire listens to this podcast, (laughs) is what we found out uh, towards the end of season one, which is an absolutely terrifying thing to find out. But also, of course, Nicky Wire listens to a podcast about his own band. Um, I would. Is criticism... (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Is criticism an important part of the creative process, do you think? I don't think it's part of the creative process. I think it's a part of the cultural process i think it's part of the of what we've built up around these things i like i think music criticism is a essential part of music writing more generally is an essential part of this kind of beautiful world that you that you engage with called being into mu- into music, not just you know, I mm. not just you know, everyone like everyone likes music. No, you know, don't get anyone who doesn't like music, but there's <laughs> like like well, there must be somebody, but 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 you know, you and I are music fans. We we we, we ident- and there's that kind of that's that's what happened when I heard when I heard Guns N' Roses the first time. It made me into a music fan. I I became like. I, I fell in love with the idea of bands, with the idea of right. albums as pieces of art, and and discussing them, and listening to them, and pouring over them, and and being in a band, and like you know having a favorite band, and making lists, and yeah, going to yeah. gigs, and and going to a gig isn't just a night out; it's a, it's an engagement with this world you've chosen to involve yourself in, um, and c- music criticism is part of that whole thing. Um, it's. I don't think it should reflect on the art you produce. 
and I say this as both a music critic and a musician, like both uh, a fan and a creator. Like I, I, mm. I, and it'd be interesting to know if those, because no, if you go from this is my truth into know your enemy, like the the critical consensus of the band was we want them to be a punk band again. We want them to be a rock band again. Right. Um, so, you know, then know your enemy people... came out and everyone went not yeah. like that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But masses against the classes came out and people, and, and people were just like, yes, that do that. Yeah. Because even yeah. though they'd, they're, they'd be the kind of common idea of the band was, um, the kind of, you know, the indie rock mainstream, you stole the sun from my heart, everything must go, that kind of thing. Um, no, the, the, from a press point of view, everyone knew that they used to be this other band, and, and people wanted, and the and the people who were in the know wanted them to be that other band again, and I think they yeah. were on the same page as that, um, and that I find like super interesting, and. and and all the all the best bands react against their last album. That's I think that's absolutely true. They both you both cast forward to your next record and you react against it. Like it's yeah. Bowie did it for his entire career. Like there's always like one or two songs that sound like the next record, but most of it, most of the re- next record sounds like a different a different artist. Um, and the Manics do it too. And I think that you can hear it in that period. Um, and I think that I think that's exactly what you're talking about. I think that's them reacting against uh, or reacting to this kind of idea and it kind of starts from music critics but it's but it also kind of gathers a momentum in fans and press and you know it's not just album reviews the the, the reviews for lifeblood would have affected the sales for lifeblood it's still absolutely it's kind of it's it's their lowest charting album it's like a little blip where it's it goes to 13 Mm. where everything else is in is in the top five if not number one or two, and two. Um, mostly two. <laughs> it's almost always yeah, two. yeah, always two. <laughs> um, Send away the tigers, though, wouldn't have happened if Lifeblood had got great reviews. Yeah, I agree. I think they so. Were, they I, must I, have I, gone into that creative prote- uh, process thinking we don't want to repeat what we mm. did last time. Like, yeah, but you know, not not just from a creative stance, but from a potentially a commercial and a criticism stance. Yeah, because that didn't work. Critically, commercially and critically, it didn't work. Um, oh, I, th- I would argue that critically it did work quite well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, I think hang on, what, critical what, part of my brain, I reckon, what do you mean? worked very, very well. Oh no, I mean, <laughs> but in terms of the in terms of the critical response, the consensus, yeah, yes, yeah yeah, 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 and that's that's what I mean. I no, I I agree with you. I I I actually think I think it's a wonderful record. I I always have. Um, and I've, I've, I, th- I like that it's coming from the cold, and we all get to feel a little bit like, oh, well, actually, oh yeah, I've been saying that for years, but um, but actually, it turns out loads yeah. of other people have been saying it too. Um, but uh, you can tell We're also that being that a lot of people pretended to like postcards from a young man at the time, <laughs> and are now <laughs> turning against it a little bit. It is probably the bottom of the table for me. That one, yeah, same. But, but um, yeah, I think uh, 
because I've talked a lot about ro the romance and mythology of being in a band, and I think for the Manics, part of that romance is about being in a successful band. Like they they could have been a cult band, right? Like, and, and they never back to kind of we want to sell out Wembley Stadium, sell yeah, eighteen million albums, the, and break up. Yeah, yeah. They want to be they've huge. never settled for being a cult band, and they still could. If they wanted to have been the Fall, they could have been. You know, if they wanted to do, if they wanted to. Yeah. Keep making esoteric, weird records um, and playing to, you know, audiences of maximum fifteen hundred, two thousand people. It's a living, <laughs> you know. You could they could they could have done it, but they've never wanted to do that because I think mattering is uh, and having some and then because they are of a generation that was them that were themselves in love with music, in love with with the whole. 360 degrees um, world of music um, you know being an outsider within them I mean Nicky loves McCarthy obviously and you know there there, yeah. there are loads of those kind of bands but there's also Guns N' Roses and there's also Public Enemy and there's also The Smiths and there's also Happy Mondays and you know they're all in the mix um, and Rush you know and they're massive bands the Manics never not wanted to be a massive band as much as they self-sabotage themselves when they were um like and there's two sides yeah. of the argument. Yeah. There's two sides of the argument. There is that on the one hand, did they do it on purpose? Or on the other hand, did they think the audience would come with them? And that, I love how in the book Andre goes into that. But um, it's you know they never. I don't think they would have repeated an album that was a commercial failure because it wouldn't have been good business. And I think part. Of, yeah, you know, that's I think, true. And it's it was okay to go and do Journal for Plague Lovers because they'd done send away the tigers and i suspect because they knew they had they knew what kind of shape postcards was going to take and they knew they'd be having these two quite accessible commercial records so they yeah they, could, they had a bit of a cachet at the time didn't they they could uh yeah it, uh, cash in and i love that period after send away the tigers where they just do whatever the fuck they like and it's brilliant it's like let's do a christmas yeah. song let's do a rihanna cover <laughs> you know that's <laughs> It's like it's not it's not the actions of a band worried about their reputation. That's the actions of a band in their imperial pomp, just going, yeah, yeah. we are godlike geniuses. Um, we can do we can do whatever we like. Uh, and it's nearly like twenty you know, years into their career. <laughs> yeah, and they had they got and because they had that period, because they had that moment, that has sustained them for the rest of their career. Because they got to that point where they kind of crossed over into a different type of band. They weren't an old they they weren't. A retro band anymore they weren't you know a 90s band they were like a you know they were in the canon of musical heritage bands they were you know, beautified by the by by enemies godlike genius award but like they yeah they were they were it created a momentum that i think gave them the gave them the room to go and do some do general plague lovers which nicky at the time said was worried he was he said he was worried was going to be a commercial flop was gonna he like wanted to, uh, ruin. He wanted to burn the recordings, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he wanted did he... to have it all recorded to take it outside and then burn it. <laughs> <laughs> Thing is, did he or did he know? No, I, obviously I, I, not. No, I, I'm, I I'm fairly. Just... I'm, I do think he maybe didn't worry about it because he knew that they had the momentum to do it, and he knew that um, that uh, that record would be critically adored because of mm. the way the Manics are thought of. And because of the amount of music journalists who were Manix fans, and if the, and if you're a music journalist who's a Manix fan, you were wait, you'd been waiting them for them to make Journal for Plague Lovers for ten years. So yeah, that's true. 
Uh, did definitely like like a, an interesting uh, like section of their career. Wh- where where do you think that they are now? I am comfortable. I think yeah. they're in a place. I think they're in a place where they can, uh, like it, I, I might be completely wrong about this. And if they wanted to go and make a Nine Inch Nails record or something, if they wanted to like, go to do a completely a fuck you album and do another taut post punk record or a full on, I, I think the next album might be a bit rockier. But it's just a hunch. Um, but I, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I kind of feel like because there's that through line between the last three records, I think that might kind of be where they are now in that sort of big sound simple minds kind of feel and that might be the just the ba- that might be their their final form as it were um do you think but i don't know that for sure but i i, I said this in the book like i on the one hand they're they're around a band that's been around for years but on the other hand if you map their career onto the rolling stones they're not even halfway through <laughs> Yeah, but then Sean reckons they've got ten to twelve years left. Yeah, but they but Nicky said that um, he couldn't see himself being forty-five and in a rock band. Yeah, no, but, but Nicky talks a lot of shit, and when Sean speaks, it's usually <laughs> with good reason, you know. That's true, but it's like it's it's like when people say, "Oh God, yeah, oh God, I'd never, I'd never want to be ninety-five. God, if I get to ninety-five, shoot me." And you're kind of like, "Let's have this conversation again when you're ninety-four. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, I I don't know. They, they 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 could have ten years left of them. You know, they'd be in their sixties. That would be a sensible time. Or they might never retire. And I've got a feeling they might they might just might just do it less often. But yeah, I think there's a good chance of that. I think we won't know that their last album is their last album. Yeah, exactly. I don't think they're I think the kind they'll of just band sort of quietly stop. Yeah, I don't think they're the kind. And then maybe and then five years later surprise you with a well yeah exactly. that comes lifeblood part two exactly yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think we're gonna get I, I don't think they're ever gonna they're ever gonna be that they're gonna have that full stop moment unless like Nicky Wire dies or something like right as yeah. much as I hate it's horrible a horrible a thought as that is I don't think they could survive that and still be the Manic Street Preachers. I don't think they well, could yeah, survive I mean, the without, death of one of them. But exactly, without being too glib about it, like they can't. I don't think they can lose another one. <laughs> yeah, you know exactly. I mean? and, and I, but yeah. um, I think James will always be a musician, and I think he'll be out on the road for the rest of his life because that's what I he mean, does. That's that's what I'm really interested in. Is is if if Manics ended tomorrow, we're gonna get some fucking weird old man James solo albums that I would lap up. Oh god, yeah. Oh, we'll get a we'll get a weird old man Nicky solo album. That like that oh, that excites me. I love that. I'm really excited about his next about his next one. Um, but I, yeah. but I think I think Nicky would be you know I mean I, I who knows his kids are grown up so it's not like he could be he'd be at home being a stay at home dad. His kids are right. his kids are virtually almost you know, give it five years. There'll be you know there won't be much being a stay at home dad left to do. <laughs> but um, I don't I can't see him. Being a touring work, a touring workhorse, you know, like grabbing, grab, putting a band together and going out on tour. But I, I think, I think James would. But you know, this is yeah, speculation. Yeah. I don't know, don't know that for sure. Well, but, I mean, you know, I, I love speculation, and in fact, I wanted to ask you, like, what do you think the Manics' legacy will like ultimately be? I think it's what it is now. I think I, that's the. It's, it's probably a bit would be a painful thing to hear. 
but do you think they've do you think they've they've said everything that they could say? I don't. I think no, they've not said everything they could say. There's always going to be more for them to say. I don't think Nicky Y will ever shut up, uh, I, <laughs> nor do I want him to. Um, but I think they've. Um, I think their legacy is 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 kind of set in stone now. I don't think there's they're not going to redefine music again. They're not going right. to. You know, they're not going to come out with an art rock masterpiece that becomes one of the great all-time great cult albums like like the holy bible and they're not going to come out with an everyman anthemic they play it down they play it down the pub and everyone knows every word light is in the air record like everything was go like right. those records are their legacy they like those rec- like that and all bands all bands are defined by like a five-year period of their career every single oh, that's uh, interesting like i the one exception is probably the Rolling Stones, where you probably got to push it to ten years. But you know, most band. But even so, you, are, you when you think of the Rolling Stones, you're really thinking of kind of sixty eight through seventy five. You know, you think right. of the Manics, you're thinking really ninety four through ninety through ninety eight. You think of um, Pulp, you're thinking ninety three through ninety seven. You know, it's. Uh, I mean, I'm about, to, I'm about to say Nirvana, but that was. They just just that that appeared that, that they yeah. they, but that's actually <laughs> why I think Nirvana is so perfect because because that's all their their defining period was all the career they had so um you know but if I but I I think that's if they hadn't I think yeah. if Kurt Cobain had lived they we'd still be defining Nirvana based on 1989 to 1994 um mm. I you know the, the the Sex Pistols are the same um you know Johnny Johnny Rotten has had a musical career that's I mean I was there a that was a pill album out in like a couple of years ago probably maybe yeah, even more recent yeah. than that but his career was is defined by 1975 to 1979 you know it's um it like you get that the very few artists get to break out Bowie is probably the one even Bowie you'd probably say that the you know it's 72 to 78 the- yeah, yeah, yeah. Seventies, yeah. And uh, everything you think about David Bowie when you think about him is really in that year, in those years. And uh, you know, that's so. I think the Manning's legacy, uh, Oasis, their legacy was two albums in the mid nineties. You know, everything, everything, <laughs> everything. But the thing is, it doesn't matter that it doesn't matter that what they've produced since is good or not good. It's kind of you know the fact that the, the fact they're still producing the Manics are still producing great music it means that they still have a viable career and we still buy their records and we still go and see them and we still talk about their new stuff and you know fans are still finding them and they have a a living breathing career they're a, they're an evolving band they're not a nostalgia act that's um, true but then to the general masses they are mm. kind of that band that did a design for life exactly they're the we don't talk about loves band and that's okay because that's all the great bands are hardly anyone gets longer than that that's really true i've never thought about that before and that's going to uh, haunt me for the rest of my life <laughs> so thank you for that <laughs> maybe the fall the fall i think carried on the fall the fall changed so dramatically yeah, um, uh, did, did they change that dramatically? They kind of just did one thing for thirty years. <laughs> that, there's a definite fear. If you look at the difference between the post-punk 
art punk like uh, late 70s early 80s fall the late 80s early 90s kind of commercial commercial mm. kind of more poppier fall and then the kind of as commercial as the fall sort of get yeah really. <laughs> but there are some genuinely like stuff like hit the north is like those those were hits um and then the kind of weird shattered art rock version. Uh, they're they're distinct bands. Neither none of those one. I think that's one of the few bands I can think of where none of those one images defines what who they are. But hardly any others. Yeah, that's interesting. So that's mm-hmm. why I think I think we know what the Manics' legacy is because it's the legacy that they've they've been carrying since since the year two thousand. Interesting. Yes, no, that's a really good point. It's also a good sort of. I guess legacy is is a good sort of full stop. But mm. I did, you know, we every guest we give them the task top ten Manic Street Preachers songs. Now, you what what's what's the so, some people just do general top tens, and and some people do themes. You've chosen a specific theme, yes, which is Nicky Wire vocals. <laughs> right now, this will be where some people turn off. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, Nicky Wise vocals. I I actually think he's a more interesting singer than James. Don't think he's a better singer than James. I, no, I do. Yeah, I think he's a more interesting singer than James. Yeah, James I lo- can sometimes almost be too like pitch mm. perfect and yeah. takes the obvious route. You know, you're yeah. never going to get pitch perfect or obvious from Nicky exactly. Wire. He's got a really there's a really nice quality to his voice that I absolutely adore um, mm. and it brings something interesting it brings a sadness and a disquiet to their songs that I, I fucking love um, now I'm, I'm assuming that you have cheated somewhat and that not all of these are strictly Manic Street Preachers songs there are two songs from his solo album Okay, we're going to allow it. We had uh, we had Terry Hall on, and she put a whole album in her top ten, uh, <laughs> and uh, and we had Michael Sheen on, and he had fourteen songs in his top ten. So if it's good enough for Michael Sheen, it's good enough for you. We're going to allow it. Okay, but, but watch yourself. Okay, okay, right. <laughs> Let's. Uh, do you want to do? Do you want to do number ten to number one, or do you want to start in the middle and work out? Let's go ten to what? No, I'm, I'm a traditionalist. Okay, okay, yeah, okay, I've talked enough about idea. pop myth to know how a top ten works. <laughs> All right, um, okay, let's do that. So, in a, so, num- so number ten is the Shining Path from I Killed the Zeitgeist, which I think is a oh, great. That's my f- um, favorite song off that album. It's a really good pop song. It sounds, it, you know, it sounds like a real song. It's like you kind of go, oh, he wrote that, amazing. It's. It's it's got this really beautiful shimmer to it, um, and it's also got mm. the kind of sighing melancholy to it. Um, yeah, fantastic song. Um, beautiful. Uh, number nine, the Left Behind, which is the final track on Resistance is Futile. Yes. Now that uh, rings absolutely no <laughs> bells at all. Is that the one that like opens with like from the it's like straight into the vocals? Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was like a willing song, conquistador. Yeah. Yes, it gets uh, uh, the that, word conquistador uh, into a song. Yes, I remember. For that, that. I mean, I, I think that's a, it's a, it makes sense of the second half of that record for me, because um, I think that I, I think the first half of that album is very strong, but it's a bit patchy in the back end, as the vicar said to the Vestal version. Sure, yes. Um, <laughs> and I, I, and it's got there's a real honesty to it. There's a, that's what I like about his vocals. They're they're very plaintive and honest. So I really like that one. Um, number- that, that's that's another testament to James and and Sean is that they know 
when to go like this is a yeah. Nicky vocal because Nicky yeah. will do some of the demos and then James will sing them. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, James will sing them, but but knowing when to use Nicky is is an art in itself. I reckon. Exactly. Yeah. It's well. It's, it's you know. It's which crayon and which crayon are we going to use in the box? Yeah, I've never heard him referred to as a crayon, but I like it. <laughs> well, James <laughs> talks about um, finding the shades in people's voices. Like he talked oh, about Georgia Ru- Georgia Ruth on Futurology. Um, yeah, uh, it's like like she had a shade of magenta in, in her voice that he could never find in his. Um, oh, that's a, that sounds like a Nicky Wire lyric. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, so that's number nine. Sorry, that's all right. Eight. Uh, Lady Lazarus. It's a B-side, off it one is of a B-side, off one of cover. Th- no, it's a reference to um, Sylvia Plath. I don't think it's a cover, but it's uh, it's 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 Nick. It's Nicky's it Foggy um, Eyes. That's a cover. Yeah, Foggy Eyes is a cover. Right, I, I get those two confused. Foggy Eyes says. going bang bang. Yeah, uh, that's a great one. But no, Lady Lazarus is um, it's about Sylvia Plath. Um, which is a, such okay. a direct Manix reference, but it's got really there's a real kind of kind of gravelly sadness to it, and it starts with a plath quote, and it, it's as Manixy as it comes. I actually, I think Send Away the Tigers is one of the best eras for Manix B sides. Like there's oh, so yeah, much agreed. good there's stuff. A whole, there's a whole other album there. Yeah. Fearless punk ballad. So many of them. Ah, oh, yeah, fearless punk cool. ballad is just beautiful. Um, you 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 have a slightly uh, there's an amount of prestige behind this mark because you're the first person to include in their top ten a song that we haven't covered on the podcast. Wow, we've never talked about Lady Lazarus because you cannot go through all of uh, the Manchester Preachers B sides because there are 500 of them. So mm-hmm. I'm going to insert a clip here somewhere on the other side of this wide night and the distance between us. I am thinking of you. The room is turning slowly away from the moon. This is pleasurable. Or shall I cross that out and say it is sad? <laughs> Professional, wasn't it? Result. I feel. I feel like I, I, I'm genuinely proud of that. Um, let's see if we yeah, can do yeah. it. Let's see if we can do it again. We've I covered, don't think we've covered loads of them, but we haven't. We haven't quite been definitive. So there, I, there we go. We can add. That there's one, to the one more outlier, but I have a suspicion. You, a suspicion that you will have got it. Um, okay, so ne- next up is um, William's last words at number seven. I mean, it's just so beautiful. Mm. And the the lyric is gorgeous because that was a short story. Yeah. Um, Nikki rearranged it from a short story that Richie wrote. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and it just caps that record so beautifully. Isn't it lovely when the storm meets the dew? It's the Welshness in his voice, the, the way he sings "do" instead of "dew." It's yeah. It's and like, his use of "nostar" as well. Yeah, it's I love that. Um, number six, "Goodbye Suicide," which is on "I Killed the Zeitgeist." Yeah. Which, like, I love the way it's kind of um, the rising feedback that kind of, that kind of travels through it. It's a really weird, 
like arty song. It's like it's a, it's the gorgeous sort of textural piece, um, and yeah, it's, it's completely it's, it's uncompromising. Not, um, you know, so, so some of those some of the tracks on I Killed the Zeitgeist you can point to and go, you know, like the Shining Path and go, oh, that's yeah. a song. Yeah, and that's Goodbye a... Suicide is much more of like a tone sort of yeah, piece. Exactly. Really. Yeah, exactly, and it really suits what I kind of it sums things up. Um, number five is one I put in for. I think the top five might be a bit contentious. Number five oh, okay. is one that I put in because I'm not sure it's the best of the Nicky Wise vocal songs, but for where it stands in the canon, it's an important one. So I'm going with Wattsville Blues at number five. Amazing. Um, because, like, you know, it's the first album track that has a Nicky Wiley yeah. vocal on it. So that it, for, and also, so belligerently, like, to write a song because the write a song because the mirror moaned about the uh, about how crap your town was, <laughs> and it's the way it finishes that every <laughs> like dead wait and just ends with the word dead, <laughs> amazing. Um, I nearly I nearly included Mister um, Opa Disco Dancer as well because uh, I always see oh, them as a man, pair. I love Mister Opa Disco Dancer, on this and I love Nikki's vocal on that. The brain dead motherfuckers, yeah, yeah. brain dead. I so spiteful. It's just amazing. Um, <laughs> so I nearly put him on that, but but I but, so yeah. Um, what's all these five three? Um, few, oh, I've missed out four. I've missed out one. Ooh, You've only I'm gonna, got nine. Uh, I'm gonna have to think of one. Okay. Uh, okay. Let's do a top three, and then I'll I'll, I'll check in one more. All right. Okay. And okay. we'll leave it for my hind brain to remember another one. Um, so number three, Futurology, where Nikki Nikki okay. sings the chorus because he sings in the chorus. Yeah. We'll come back one day. We never really went away. Um, and it's a great chorus. It's a really great. Like do 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 do. It's a great song. Um, and it's uh, got Nikki all over it, and it's a really. Uh, I like it because it's, it's not kind of like going. Oh, this is the sad one, so we'll give it to Nikki to sing. Or this is the weird one, so we'll give it to Nikki to sing. It's it's right. a banger. It's a proper chorus, and Nikki sings the chorus, and does a fine job on it. It works with his voice. It took um, me ages to get that song. I actually used to skip it and start the album with "Warm Me to the Bridge" because it just like on first blush, it just sounded like another straightforward Mannix do rock song but upon listening to it for this podcast and having listened to it like 50 times in two weeks or whatever there's so many details in that song and the composition is very strange and there's mm. some cool like riffs going on in the background oh I love that song it's, yeah, yeah it's great so good I'm singing it live and really enjoying it um, number two now you might question whether this one counts but I think it does because it's my oh, favourite bit of the song here we go. Number two is your love is alone your love is alone? not enough. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Because <laughs> I really love like, his voice comes out of nowhere. Like it has no place yeah, being really there. Surprising. Should have told you. This is shown you or told you. Should have shown you. Um, it's <laughs> it's just that one line. But Nikki wrote the you know that's a Nikki Wire song entirely. Nikki wrote the melody, so it mm. works really well. And I just really like how his voice just comes out, just cuts out of nowhere, and it's it's this kind of moment of atonality and. It doesn't quite sit, but I always really enjoy it. On, it's always on a like big shiny pop single. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's two, like it's... you've got like two great singers, James Dean Bradfield and Nina Pearson. Yeah, and then suddenly a Nicky Wire appears. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a wild Nicky Wire has appeared. Um, yeah, and I always look forward to that bit. It's always the like whenever I listen to that song, he doesn't always do it live, and I'm always disappointed when he doesn't. Uh, but I always look forward to that bit 
like if, it, if that song comes on, I sit there waiting. It's like the um, it's like what does it take to turn me on in Animal Nitrate? You know, there's uh, like there's always <laughs> that there's that one bit you look forward to. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Um, so can you guess what number one is? Okay, so number one, what top Nicky vocals? Well, you said there was only two from the solo album. I mean, uh, off the top of pa 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 pa. I don't know. I know that there's one on postcards. I don't think it's that one. Go on. Ballad of the Bangkok Novotel. Of course it's Ballad of the Bangkok Novotel. Ballad yes. of the Bangkok Novotel. Brilliant. So uncomfortable. Yeah, it reminds me good. of, um, and I think it probably was in the back of their mind, um, but it reminds me of something Graham Coxon would have done in the, in the 90s. Uh, like, oh, yeah. Good shout. Uh, uh, like it's so noisy and uncompromising, and um, I kind of thought maybe that's what his solo album was going to sound like—just pure, like kind of unbridled like, punk sort of. Yeah, thing. yeah. Just like just just like a, a baseball bat to the face kind of punk, like nothing sophisticated, but really like leaning into the fact that he that his singing voice is, you know, not dexterous to say the least right uh, yeah. and like it, using it using his voice as, as a as a strength like using the quality of his voice as a strength um it's i, I love that song it's when the first time i heard it i was just like i just loved it it's such a I, and you, you know you listen to it going okay this is somebody who loves mccarthy this is uh, you mm-hmm. can hear all of those kind of all those weirder things marky smith and you know it's all in the it's like yeah i think um, does like Jarvis Cocker? There's a bit of Jarvis Cocker when he does his when he does weird stuff goes down that direction. Like when Jarvis formed Relaxed Muscle, um, which was the band he was in after Pulp, where he took on the persona a persona of somebody called Daryl Spooner. Uh, you're, you're talking a different language to me. I didn't know any of this. Yeah. Oh, oh Relaxed Muscle, are great. It's like Jarvis Cocker's Electro Class record. Um, it's properly fucking creepy it's really like <laughs> seedy old man electro bangers but yeah I, I love it for its uncompromising nature I love it for its pure distillation of of wiry spy and also I love it because he's because if you know your manic's history it's it's the story of their trip to Bangkok in 1993 or 4 right, whatever it was yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is uh, which there's a whole like sub genre of manic songs about cities and Ballad of the Bangkok Never Tell is one of them well it was potentially that was one of his ideas for an album right? mm. he had like, some like Leeches in Havana was one of them I think yeah and Cardiff Afterlife was was apparently yeah, one yeah, of them yeah yeah uh, was of apparently one of them it may, I, um, yeah and there's a few that come out over the years I, want, I, I wondered if whenever I hear I, um, I wondered if Still Snowing in Sapporo was, would, had come from that as well oh maybe Caldi that was that's another one. Um, <laughs> uh, was that was that the one that you thought maybe we hadn't touched on? I thought it was possible. It was a possibility. So, yeah, you're not going to get the double on this go round. When we did the B sides uh, episode, I handpicked like well, me and the listeners handpicked twenty of them, and as if I was going to not put Ballad of Bangkok Novotel in there. Of course we did. So that's nine, Mark. Do you want to be the first guest that has a top nine? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's something I'd want to. I'd want to be. I'd, uh, is that a, is that a distinctive honour that I can take? On? I think I'll keep I it to a so. top nine. It's a not. It's a, it's a yeah, satisfyingly it's awkward number. Yeah, it's good. Uh, in the same way that these, some of these songs are satisfyingly awkward. Yeah, yeah. That's the whole point of yeah. them. Yeah, lovely. It fits. 
um one thing i did want to ask you actually i want to touch on touch on because i'm in i'm in a similar boat to you mm. what's it like being you know from that top 10 and the way that you talk about music and the way that you uh kind of draw lines between bands and stuff you know we were just talking about jarvis cocker and the fall and everything um what is it like being a music critic who also makes music do you ever feel like a bit of a like I, I struggle with feeling like a bit of a hypocrite mm, no I don't I've never really had a it's never really worried me okay. there is that thing That's about crit- well don't let me put it in your head like <laughs> there is that thing about critics being fail all music critics being failed musicians and I think there is something right about. yeah but on the other hand I think ne- knowing how to I think it's, I'm quite comfortable about the fact that I'm in a band that people like <laughs> if that right. makes sense yeah yeah like, um, yes. like you know it's the bit like like the, with the Terry Pratchett book like by and large like we get really good reviews and people like it um, I suppose I, also the other thing is 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 your your band you know uh, I don't think it's unkind to say is very niche yeah oh yeah right? we're, we're super niche so like you know you're operating in a very uh, very specific realm and you yeah. know, you're not going to have to be critical of a lot of other bands that are like that because there are not a lot of other bands like Exa- that you know exactly yeah i don't think not, like me reviewing the gary newman's latest record is not gonna really have an impact on the baseline that oh. i'm playing on a on a victorian themed punk rock song um yeah, about exactly. like a, punk. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> um but it's uh yeah i mean the 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 other side of that though is that because i do stand up yeah, and I would never write about comedy properly. I'd never review comedy. Um, would that be too sort of like hypocritical? Yeah, too. I'm just too close to it. Because um, I, um, I write sort of like vaguely experimental, like pop songs, mm-hmm. and so when I'm saying things like, "Oh, I don't like this about this manic song," or "Oh, I find this bit in a Muse song to be," you know, less than artistically meretitious. And I'll then go away and think, well, I can't do any of that fucking stuff in my songs now because I'm not <laughs> the biggest hypocrite in the world. <laughs> I think with comedy, there's a lot more risk of that. Um, but also you might end up, it's very easy, you'd very easily end, end up on a car journey driving to a gig in Bristol with somebody whose who's, uh, Edinburgh show you gave two stars to the previous year. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't be good, would it? Are you but, getting back? You're, you're, are you getting back out into the the comedy like world? What uh, like, bits and bobs? Going on? I are they um, sort of broadly open. Well, now, I, I gave up doing club stand up about five years ago because uh, it was just exhausting. Uh, you know, yeah, it didn't. It's so hard to make a living. Doing the gigs is great, but everything in between the gigs, the booking gigs, traveling to gigs, trying to make, right, yeah, trying to like have a life around them as well. Which so I I I tend to do what I tend to do these days is I I'll write a, a one man show, and I'll do you know I'll I'll gig it in and try and try out bits and do clubs to try out new stuff and then I'll you know I'll do a one man show at the Edinburgh Fringe and all the bright and maybe the Brighton Fringe and take it to a few of the festivals. Maybe I'll do a short tour here and a couple of dates here and there. But I'll very much do it as a one as like a one man show self contained thing. Um, rather, and I still I still do other gigs occasionally if if people ask me to or if um, something just comes I just see an opportunity it looks like fun, but I don't yeah. tend to. Uh, comedy is extremely intense and you have to give it a hundred percent all the time in terms of the effort you put into it. Like, so the, you kind of are you are you working on anything now? Because I know I know you're working on another book. If you're the, saying that comedy needs a hundred percent, then 
Yeah, there's the yeah the book is the book takes up everything at the moment. I I I'm, I might I'm thinking of writing a show that will be about the kind of history of rock and roll. But uh, a friend of mine wrote I mean, a history. Just, of just do a show about the book you're writing because you've already written the book. Mark. It <laughs> seems like a it seems like a no brainer. Yeah, it's got to find the jokes though. It's a different art form. Uh, but there's a lot of crossover. There is a lot of crossover in, in it. So yeah, I'm writing the book. I'm writing the, at the minute is about the it's about Bowie and Mark Boland in the 1960s. And it's yes. looking, and it's looking at how Britain got from post-war austerity, um, you know, this kind of shattered world of cobblestones and rationing, and everything looked like an old episode of Coronation Street to the kind of <laughs> pansexual explosion of of crushed velvet and Technicolor of the early nineteen seventies. And it's kind of how do we get from there Amazing. to there by following the t- these two, these two figures who are the same but different um and that's because you know born the same Amazing. year from the same city uh their their careers had a similar shape so um it's, it's the first of two books so um one of oh, which is going to be the first of two one of which will be about the 60s and one of which about it will be about the 70s uh, and when are they like any planned release dates or anything? We we must plug. We're nearly uh, the episode, so we're gonna have to plug some stuff. Um, hopefully the Bowie, but the the sixties one will be out in August. Hopefully, if I get it in on time, it's due in at the end of the year. Okay, okay, great. But the we have the uh, the Man Actually Preachers book that's out now and is available out now? like basically everywhere, everywhere. Right? I could I yeah. could walk into a shop and buy one now. Yeah. Uh, you could probably you could certainly walk into a shop and uh, and ask them to order it in for ask you. If- very kindly if they'll order it yes <laughs> but which they definitely will be able to do I, I can't guarantee it'll be in stock but um uh, and it, it, yeah it's uh you can get it any yeah all the all the book buying places although if you go to markburrows.co.uk which is my website um mark let's see uh you can buy it directly from me and um i've done a special Perfect. edition that comes with a fanzine that collects all of the things i've written about the band since the year 2000 so. amazing so that's markburrows.co.uk right yeah and you're on Twitter. People can find you on Twitter and, and, and yeah, all at twentieth century mark. If you just Google me. I'm now the top Mark Burroughs on Google. I'm very proud of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> was was there a time where you weren't the top Mark? Oh Burroughs yeah, and so it's only this year I finally overtook him. Um, Who's the were, other Mark Burroughs? The, well, there's, there's a few, but the one that was the top the top Google uh, was a footballer who held the record for the fastest ever professional professional goal. Um, oh, well, there you go. We had uh, Mark Beaumont on uh, a, f- a few months ago, who of course. Oh. Forever mistaken for the cyclist, Mark Beaumont. <laughs> but the, I mean, very sadly, the other Mark Burroughs died um, about oh, ten no. years ago. Uh, so that's probably why you overtook him then. And so, yeah, basically, he his uh, you know my my my, um, my kind of collective um, footprint had been increasing, whereas his very much has sort of stayed still. I think his record oh. got broken as well. Poor poor chap. <laughs> well, that's a real. Uh... Real down note to end it on, Mark. And on that cheerful note of me yeah, gloating, <laughs> me gloating over the death of somebody with the same name as me for no other reason than that yeah. I am now the, the top Google of their achievement. Great. Yes. Okay, um, well, thanks very much for coming on, Mark. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Well, there you go. That is it. That I mean, you know, that was uh, a lovely, a lovely chat. I thought uh, it was good to finally get to talk to Mark, uh, having only res- like corresponded with him through emails and uh, tweets and uh, editors' notes and, and, and that stuff. Um, it, it brings us to the end of another episode. 
please go out and uh, you know if the book sounds like your kind of thing go out and buy it it's called Manic Street Preachers album by album it's like available in like most places uh, you know markbrows.co.uk it's on Amazon it's on you know ev- everywhere uh, it, it is genuinely like I know I contributed to it but it is genuinely uh, a very interesting way to go about telling the story of a band through all those sort of different perspectives um, thank you so much for listening this week uh, our next episode is the Matt Bellamy solo album Cryosleep so we're going back to Muse and then it's just a final run right up until the end of this season but it is your turn to come and talk us uh come and find us on our social media and let us know what you think of anything that mark said anything that i said uh whether or not you've got the book what you think of the book you can find us on twitter at what is music pod instagram at what is music pod tiktok at what is music and if you'd like to send in something a little bit longer you can uh, have us read it out on the show that would be cool i mean if you, if you want to send us something longer you don't want it read out that's fine as well just let us know in the email uh but i think you know on one of the episodes coming up i'm going to read a lot of these emails probably uh, around christmas time you can email us what is music pod at gmail.com uh we also have a couple of ways that you can support us other than listening if you would like to uh primarily financially uh one is to buy our merchandise if you go to what is music you will find some of our manics designs our music designs and general podcast designs uh if you don't fancy any of the merch that's absolutely fine you could still chuck us a few quid if you'd like to you can go to coffee.com which is ko hyphen fi.com slash what is music and that goes towards the running of the podcast keeping it online things like that that about does it uh thank you again uh for listening uh don't destroy your rock and roll or rock and roll will destroy you